This is the review of democracy, the platform of the Central European University's Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications regarding the past, present, and future of democracies and of democratic consciousness across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso. I will be your host today, and it is my pleasure to introduce Susan Nyman today. Welcome to the show, Professor Nyman, and thanks so much for joining. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Great to have you at the Review of Democracy. By way of an all too brief introduction, uh, Professor Nyman is a moral philosopher, a cultural commentator and essayist who has written extensively on the juncture between enlightenment moral philosophy, metaphysics and politics. She acts as the director of the Einstein Forum in Potsdam. Her major works include Slow Fire, Jewish Notes from Berlin, The Unity of Reason, Rereading Kant, Evil in Modern Thought, An Alternative History of Philosophy, and most recently, Learning from the Germans, Race and Memory of Evil from 2019, among a host of other significant publications. Now, Susan Neumann has just co-edited with Michael Wild a fascinating new volume in the German language titled Historiker Streiten, Gewalt und Holocaust, die Debatte, which might be roughly translated into English as Historians Quarrel, Violence and the Holocaust, a debate, and the release of which serves as the occasion for our conversation today. So let us perhaps begin our conversation, Professor Neumann, by saying that the memory culture of the Federal Republic of Germany has received much praise in recent decades and self-critical ways of dealing with the past, which have become really prominent in Germany um, after being fostered by numerous actors from below, have even been presented as providing a kind of globally relevant template regarding how to confront mass violence and mass crimes in a sensitive and substantial manner. And you have clearly been appreciative of such developments towards a more critical memory culture and have discussed them uh, in detail in your recent book, Learning from the Germans. Now, in several of your more recent articles, even more recent ones, you have also pointed to the difficulties of representing in contemporary German discussions what would probably be considered a perfectly mainstream left liberal Jewish position in the US of representing, especially with regard to the state of Israel and the Palestinians, I should say, a, a universalistic a commitment to human rights aimed at justice. So let us perhaps our conversation with the discussion of these issues and the potential connections between them. So what do you view as some of the key achievements of the German process of dealing with the past of the Vergangenheits Aufarbeitung in, in more recent decades? And what might make the articulation of such left liberal and universalistically Jewish commitments increasingly difficult in the current discussions? So that's in itself a very a set of very good and very large questions, but let me try to answer them briefly. Despite the very strong criticisms I have made in the German press, uh, and also in this in this new book, and at least in my um, in my contribution to it, I've made a lot of uh, criticism in the last two years about many of the ways in which this historical reckoning 
is being conducted at the moment. Um, I still think we have to acknowledge the fact that the Germans did it at all. And they did something that no other nation ever did. All nations tend to like to um, see their ancestors and their major figures in heroic terms and to sweep the bad parts of their history under the carpet. When that becomes absolutely impossible, what nations tend to do is turn to a victim narrative and say, well, we suffered a lot and we might have been heroes if history had led us. No nation before the Germans ever decided to say we were perpetrators and that is an important part of our national identity. No one ever did that, okay? And, you know, it happened slowly. It happened unwillingly. Uh, certainly, particularly in West Germany, people prepared by pre preferred by and large to have, uh, you know, keep a victim narrative. We suffered so much during the war. We lost the war. Our cities were bombed. Uh, you know, that was the preferred narrative of the majority of the people really far into the 80s. But slowly, the country built a consensus that actually they were perpetrators, okay? And, and not that their major role in the war was as perpetrators and not as victims. And it went so far, or it goes so far, that there are plenty of people, Germans, who will refer to themselves as the Täterfolk, the perpetrator people, or, or the Täternation, the perpetrator nation, which I think is a bit, um, probably not very healthy to you know to identify yourself so totally with the perpetrators but the what happens apart from a kind of german self-hatred that i don't think is healthy i think there's a big difference between taking responsibility for the crimes that your nation has committed and seeing yourself really you know primarily in the light of those crimes, which I do think the Germans have done. I, I thought they had gotten away from it for a bit, but I don't think they have. Um, but the, the other side of that is if the Germans see themselves as the perpetrator of people, how do they see Jews as the victim people, right? They, again, I thought they were getting away from that too, but the reduction of Jews to victims is, first of all, offensive to many Jews, but secondly, it leads to terrible foreign policy and indeed terrible memory culture within Germany, because it is very, very hard uh, for Germans to see Jews as something other than victims. It's one reason, and I find this terribly sad, you mentioned the universalist tradition to which I belong. I'm not alone in that way at all. I would say at least half of the Jewish people around the world probably belong to the universalist tradition in Judaism, which goes all the way back to the Bible. Now, the Bible also has a nationalist tradition. And these two traditions have been at war with each other since the beginning, but they're both there. And interestingly enough, the great Jewish intellectuals and artists and writers, uh, which most both Jews are proud of 
and Germans are proud of when they talk about the great German Jewish tradition, they were all universalists from Moses Mendelssohn to Hannah Arendt and Albert Einstein, all of them were universalists. None of them were nationalists, even though many supported the need for a Jewish state, although it's noteworthy that both Einstein and Arendt were in favor of a binational state. Okay, that's something that is now being discussed again. But that universalist tradition was, alas, pretty much wiped out in Germany. It still exists in the US, a little bit in England, a little bit in France, uh, and even to some extent, although not anything like a majority in Israel. Okay, so you, you have those voices, but you don't have many here at all. And the Jewish community is primarily represented by an extremely conservative nationalist body called the, the Central Council of Jews in Germany, which claims to speak for all the Jews in Germany. They do not. They might speak for half of them, but the other half of us, and we don't have exact numbers on this at all, the other half of us do not belong to the mechanisms by which one is officially counted as a Jew in Germany. Um, even if one is a fairly prominent Jewish intellectual, if you don't officially belong to the community, you're not counted. And there are thousands of Jews in Germany who are not counted. Now, what I think happened, so, so you first of all have the problem, it's very hard not to see Jews as victims, just very hard. And secondly, that you, the universalist Jewish tradition, which was so strong and flowered here, uh, has been almost entirely wiped out. What I think happened, though, to make things between German and Jews much worse in the last couple of years is that in 2017, for the first time since the war, a far-right party raised enough uh, votes to get into parliament. And decent Germans were terribly upset about this and wondering what to do, because many of the people in that party are you know, quite close to Nazi positions. And they were certainly one of their main, they had basically two platforms which took them into parliament. One was they were against the refugees who came uh, mostly from Syria during the terrible war in Syria, uh, some from Afghanistan as well, of course. They were against refugees and they were against this historical memory culture. They were violently against it. What was then done with good intentions um, to deal with this new phenomenon that for the first time in 70 years, we had a, we had a far right party. Um, they made a number of missteps. One was to appoint a series of commissioners um, to deal with anti-Semitism, none of whom are really qualified for the job there. And none of them really know enough about Jews or Israel or Palestine to, um, you know, to be able to fulfill that role. And they of course rely on this very conservative central council um, for their information, okay. Um, the second thing 
that happened was in 2019. So the so you have late 2017, the AFD, the far right party, comes into parliament. Early 2018, the government responds by appointing a series of anti-Semitism commissioners. And in 2019, the parliament passes something called the BDS resolution. At that moment in time, no one in Germany had heard of BDS and you know, it's certainly not a potent political force. How did we get to a BDS resolution which says this movement, Boycott, Divest, Sanctions, which was initiated by Palestinians to provide an alternative to terrorism, seeing that nothing in the occupied territories has been changing, not wanting to turn to terrorism. Um, they began this boycott movement. Um, and perhaps I should say, I don't support it um, for a couple of reasons. And I certainly am aware that there are people in the BDS movement who are anti-Semitic, but there are people in the British Labour Party who are anti-Semitic. I mean, there are lots of people who are anti-Semitic and we still deal with them, talk with them, talk about their positions. But in Germany, they were turned into anyone who was, is in any sense close to BDS, doesn't denounce BDS with the first uh, words out of their lips, uh, has been, turned into a pariah. How did this start? The AFD very smartly learned from Steve Bannon that the best way to get a, away with every other kind of racism is to say you're against anti-Semitism and you support everything that's done by the state of Israel. I don't know for a fact that they literally had a conversation with Steve Bannon about this, although I know they've had lots of conversations with him. Um, but I do know, it's a matter of public record, that they meet regularly with Bannon and, uh, you know, who's been trying to support a variety of right-wing groups in Europe and who, uh, you know, and you can simply see this is what Trump did. Trump was the most racist president uh, the United States ever had with Possible. Well, you'd have to go very far back in time to find as racist a president as Donald Trump. But he just said again yesterday, the Jews don't appreciate what he did for Israel. Um, it's true. Fortunately, Jews in, in America see through this. 77% of them voted against Trump. But he went on, uh, he went on his social media today, today or yesterday, and said, you know, the Jews don't appreciate what I've done. They should they should get it together and support me more. The people who appreciate me are the evangelical Christians. This is true, um, but we don't have to go into that. In any case, the AFD taking a leaf from Trump decided that the best way to do away with its neo-Nazi image was to introduce a resolution into parliament banning BDS from German soil. Again, I'm not sure there was any BDS on German soil, but okay. Um, and that was a very cynically smart move because it put all of the other parties in a bind. Um, they knew that such a move would be unconstitutional because it would go against freedom of speech, but they did not want to be outdone in philosemitism by the AfD. So 
16 days later, they passed a resolution virtually banning BDS. That is saying that anybody who was close to BDS would uh, not be allowed to speak or perform in any space that was supported by the government. Now, one of the great things about Germany is almost every space in which there's culture or um, intellectual discussion is at least partly supported by the government. So it amounted to a virtual ban. Uh, the first victim of this was the director of the Jewish Museum, Berlin's Jewish Museum. I mean, it's been crazy stuff. And a number of Israelis since then have been, um, you know, they're not allowed to perform if they're musicians. They're not allowed, to, their exhibits are uh, cut and banned and not funded if they're artists. Um, you know, there are, it's to say BDS in Germany right now is like saying communist in the United States in the 50s, okay? Um, I and my friends and comrades have been working on pushing back against this, but it's been extremely difficult. So what has happened and basically through a sort of manipulation of, of the IFD is that instead of looking at real anti-Semitism and 93% of um, all anti-Semitic actions, according to the police, these are police statistics, are um, made by white right-wing German men, okay? But instead of, and we've had murders, we've had uh, you know all kinds of things, but instead of really investigating those and going after those, um, the media and the government are going after left-leaning Jews, um, Palestinians and other Muslims. And it's really quite disturbing on the grounds that any criticism of the Israeli government is equal to anti-Semitism. And it's a position that, of course, the Israeli government loves and likes to promote. It was not always that way. Um, but the more far right Israel moves, and it has been moving steadily to the right, and I fear that's going to be cemented in the next election, the more intensively they assert the claim any criticism of us is anti-Semitism. And it's uh, terrible. Perhaps a last word, one of my friends and comrades in this struggle, Emily Disha Becker, who uh, is coming out with a book pretty soon on these topics, has said something that I think is very deep. She said that uh, the Germans really wanted Israel to be redemption for the Holocaust. Um, and, you know, that basically means Israel has to be a story that, you know, is basically only a happy ending. And it's not a happy ending. And I think that's one reason why the Germans hold on so intensely to this idea that, um, you know, um, criticism Israel, of Israel is not allowed in this country. Long answer to a complicated question. I, I've spent the last two years of my life basically focused on this issue.
Thank you so much for that. I think that's going to illuminate this very varying trend and also their context, intellectual and political context. So thank you so much for that. I wanted us also to talk a bit about questions of global consciousness and diversity. Because, uh, you know, in more recent years, I should say, we have a more globalized discussion. And some would say that German discussions and German memory culture uh, in general uh, can appear somewhat provincial in certain respects. Uh, and you have noted uh, in one of your recent articles that the thesis concerning the two dictatorships, as it's often called in German, the Nazi and the Soviet, appeared perfectly acceptable to many in Germany after 1989-90. However, as soon as uh, the question of colonialism and, and the question of colonial crimes have started to be addressed more prominently, uh, the thesis on the singularity, the uniqueness uh, of the Holocaust has been revived, uh, not least in order to oppose uh, such attempts to broaden the frame of European history, again, European history understood in a narrow sense, right, as kind of the history of a, of, of a, of a geographic location, if you wish. And, I think several of the contributors to the book you have just credited, Historica Streiten, do underline that German memory culture is indeed in need of becoming more open and more inclusive. So I wanted to ask you a few questions in, in connection with these. So first of all, you know, would you agree with this charge that there is a certain self-centeredness and provincialism in memory discussions in Germany today? And second, you know, what makes uh, the German discussions around the Nazi colonial relationship so emotional and that in some sense so vehement, right? This is at least how I tend to perceive it, right? Because after all, uh, there is a lot of overlap between the two sides, if you wish, or the various sides. Uh, they put an emphasis on empire building. They certainly are very uh, keen on exploring in a very critical way violent racist practices of the past and uh, nonetheless a basic consensus seems out of reach so i was wondering what you what you make of that those are all good and and large question yes i agree that the german discussion is extremely provincial even the complaint now on the left oh we haven't done anything because we haven't worked through our colonial past in itself is provincial because um excuse me, what has Spain done? Portugal, Britain, France, the Netherlands. The Netherlands is starting actually, um, but you know, the Netherlands is faster than anybody else. I mean, the discussion over colonialism, which I think is very welcome and, you know, uh, perhaps should have happened much earlier, but it's just begun. Uh, three years ago, was it four years ago? Three years ago, there was a poll in the Guardian asking how many Britons felt regretful or, or ashamed of their colonial past. 19% said yes, okay? So, I mean, I think the very fact that the Germans started this historical reckoning vis-a-vis -vis the Holocaust put them in a fairly good position to you know, begin to think over earlier crimes. But what you hear at the moment from the left is, oh, we haven't done anything, and that's just silly. It's, it's only looking at Germany. So, but yes, I think that the discussion both on the left and the right is rather provincial. Why is the right so averse to saying, let's look at colonialism too? I think, or the center right. I think there are two reasons. I think, um, I think for some people on the right, um, certainly the far right, it's 
is a sort of, oh God, we're sick of it. Do we have to be sorry for something else now? I mean, that's a very strong, there's a even a, a word in German, the Schlussstrich, um, putting a, you know, putting a line under the discussion about guilt and responsibility. So that would be the response of the far right. You know, we thought we were done. And now somebody's bringing up a, a new group of things we have to atone and possibly pay for. Um, so that's that's the far right. But in the center, I think there's a different impulse that also hasn't been entirely appreciated, uh, certainly not appreciated by someone like Dirk Moses, who I think is right in some ways. Um, but I don't think he quite gets the, oh, what should we call it, psychosocial standpoint of most Germans. In 1985, when Richard von Weizsäcker gave his famous speech that basically was, you know, it was the first time the head of the state said, no, we were perpetrators. Um, up to that point, and many people did not like Weizsäcker's speech, it's funny because I was there in Berlin at the time and I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. I felt like he was saying, you know, the earth is round or something. Germans were guilty of starting the war. Okay. But so many people had resisted that, that they were even opposed to Weizsäcker, although he was a conservative um, president. But it took, it was so hard to get to the point of embracing the idea that the Holocaust was a particularly horrible crime. Because up until then, a large majority of the country had said, oh, wars are always terrible. Everybody suffers, everybody sins. There's always war crimes, or even there are no crimes during a war because everything is a crime. Um, that it was an achievement to say in the context of this political debate, the first historical Streit, no, the Holocaust was especially bad, and we need to take responsibility for that. And people forget about the Historica Streit that, you know, it was not some kind of metaphysical or historical um, debate for all the ages. It took place in a very specific political context where you could see that the right was gaining a sort of power again. Ernst Nolte, the person who started the debate, he taught history, but actually his um, degree was in philosophy. He started studying with Heidegger, that great Holocaust denier. Um, then Heidegger wasn't allowed to teach, so he finally got his PhD from someone else. But this is where the position that was saying, you know, actually Stalin was worse and Hitler was just responding to Stalin and we shouldn't, we should normalize the discussion around the Holocaust or the Second World War. And that was a situation in which the philosopher Jürgen Habermas, but then later many other people said, no, 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 this is a particularly bad crime and it should not be compared with other things. But that is a metaphysical statement, just as to say, don't think you can get off so easily by pointing to other people, okay? So it was a way of taking responsibility and of not, not putting it off by saying, okay, you know, everybody does it, right? Very different situation from the situation we have now. 
again, as you mentioned, as I've written, it's funny that five years later, they were talking about, uh, you know, East Germany as being just as bad <laughs> as the Nazi period, but that's okay. They forgot about that. Well, they didn't. It's kind of been enshrined in stone. It's, it is the way that people often talk about it uh, without really noticing. So when a decent German says the Holocaust was singular, what I think she's saying is, no, we were the worst. We don't want to, you know, fob off our responsibility on other people. We really were terrible and we've acknowledged that. And, you know, quite possibly, I mean, I, I think many of these people are sort of responding to their parents or their grandparents who were the ones who were saying, ah, you know, look at what, look at the bombing of Dresden. It was, you know, so, um, but of course, from the perspective of a universalist who wants to acknowledge the crimes that were committed under colonialism, it's a very different perspective. It's saying, wait a sec, are you saying only the, you know, uh, murder of Jews is a bad thing? I mean, I, you know, as a universalist Jew, I think that's crazy. Uh, you know, of course, murdering or persecuting anybody simply because they belong to a particular group is genocide and it should be condemned and fought and commemorated wherever it happens. I think part of the problem that happens with this whole historical debate is it keeps changing levels. You have a historical level, you have a political level and you have a moral level, okay? And people keep switching and they come up with some historical thing that was different during the Holocaust and during colonialism. And you can say, yeah, it was different, sure. But it doesn't make it morally less problematic. And you asked about why the intensity of these debates, the intensity is because the levels keep being confused between a moral, uh, discussion and, and a historical discussion. And my view is simply, as I said in the book, look, you know, historians and anthropologists and sociologists can go on talking about the differences between hatred of Jews and hatred of Black people and hatred of Indigenous peoples as long as they want to. That's fine. Those are interesting, uh, interesting things to study, perhaps. But from a moral position, there's no way in which you can say that the Holocaust is a singular event in the sense of being worse than anything else. Now, then if you talk, if you argue with a historian about this, he'll say, you know, well, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm doing history. And then I have to say, look, guys, um, you are doing history, but just like the first historic Ashtrite, which was primarily conducted by philosophers and not just historians, or at least, I mean, Nolte was also a philosopher. Habermas was a philosopher. It involved the entire you know, intelligentsia in a debate. Um, you know, my, my view is always you can go on and talk about your historical differences and I'm not going to deny them, but don't confuse that with a debate about which atrocity was more important because they're both important. Oh, excellent. I, I should say I use a, a part of your book, Evil, in Modern Thought, where you reflect precisely on this, right? When you discuss uh, Lisbon in the 18th century and the earthquake, 
and how the self-perception of humans may have been impacted by the unique event of, of Auschwitz, but that doesn't translate uh, into a claim of, of uniqueness. I, I actually, I give this uh, uh, to students of history <laughs> in oh, a history class to, uh, to, 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 to make them reflect in a, in, in a, different, in a different way on, on, on a different level. But I wanted us to talk also about something that you, you mentioned just before we started recording that you've been working on uh, in recent years and that you'll be publishing a book about uh, and, and, and that concerns the heritage of the Enlightenment and the post-colonial critique uh, and, and the relationship, I, 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 I believe. And I think there is um, a lot to be discussed here, and by necessity we, we have to be brief, uh, but I, I would say that there is a certain tension uh, nowadays uh, between the way uh, the post-colonial critique is formulated and what we understand as the intellectual heritage of the philosophical Enlightenment, and my sense is that you want to defend uh, this intellectual heritage and you want to explain that it's worth uh, defending, <laughs> obviously. So I wanted to ask you a bit about, about this relationship, how you see it. What do you consider valid and what you might consider problematic about the post-colonial criticisms that have been uh, articulated? Uh, and, and how do you see the contest between these two uh, that, that, that has also become quite tense uh, in more recent years? So. To begin with, people have begun to equate post-colonial theory with anti-colonialism. And you can be an anti-colonialist without post-colonial theory, um, as people certainly were under socialism, okay? So, I mean, that's the first really important thing to say. Uh, I'm, glad that the post-colonialists have once again reminded us of the prevalence of colonialism and those parts of our history that we'd prefer to ignore and how central it was. So I, I'm glad of that, but I'm not glad about the way that they're doing it. And um, just to put this very briefly, because I did just, or rather, I have to finish the final version by the end of the month, um, have just been working on this question. I think they're using the wrong theories and their criticisms of the Enlightenment are, um, I have to say, mostly simply ignorant. The Enlightenment, when, when people call the Enlightenment Eurocentrist, they obviously don't know that it was the Enlightenment that invented the entire idea of Eurocentrism. It was the Enlightenment, starting at the very latest with Montesquieu, though you might say also with Montaigne. Um, I don't really count him to the Enlightenment, but still, even earlier, you have a European insisting that Europeans look outside Europe. Um, you know, and not just to learn in general or out of curiosity, but for models, for better models of politics, of morality, and of um, religious organization, okay? You had a whole trope of Enlightenment intellectuals writing in the voice of someone from Tahiti, the emperor of China, an indigenous South American priest, um, a native uh, American from what's now Canada. You know, this was a thing. And they partly did it because they could voice, or the Persians in um, 
in Montesquieu's case, they could voice criticisms of Europe um, that would have been much harder to voice in their own names had they been saying, you know, I'm doing this, but uh, I think uh, the church is uh, horrible, oppressive, sexist, all kinds of things. Um, so they did it in, in other voices. There's some new evidence that's come up that actually some of the indigenous voices were quite real, that they were actually taking indigenous critiques. That's contested. I'm not a historian, so I won't go into it. I just know that any of the major, almost any of the major Enlightenment figures thought that Europeans needed to look outside Europe moreover they did this despite the fact that there was a considerable risk of doing so. One of my favorite examples is a philosopher who's now pretty much forgotten, but he, he very much influenced Kant, Christian Wolf. Christian Wolf decided to study Chinese philosophy. And he read Confucius and Mencius and uh, concluded and said publicly, that the Chinese had a system of morals, even though they didn't have Christianity. For that, he was told to leave Prussia um, within 48 hours or he would be executed, you know? So, I mean, give up his professorship, leave Prussia, leave his home. I mean, these were people who took risks to talk about the problems of Eurocentrism. So as you can see, it gets me rather angry when I hear post-colonialists saying the Enlightenment was Eurocentric. You know, yeah, they couldn't travel, okay, in the way that we can. You didn't have the kind of mechanism. So of course, they, um, you know, they sometimes said things that, we wouldn't say today that strike us as as crude or even possibly racist today. Okay, but one of the things that they were good about, which I'm afraid is lacking in many post-colonial theorists today, they knew something about the limits of their knowledge. Rousseau wrote, for example, all of Africa is filled with um, people of whom we know nothing because the people who go there are more interested in filling their pockets than their minds. Okay, you know, so you, you have this critique. And then the second claim that post-colonialists make is that the Enlightenment was the, um, you know, the ideology of colonialism. And once again, no one was more um, critical of colonialism than the major thinkers of the Enlightenment. Kant calls it an evil. Um, there are passages of Diderot that I was actually thinking of writing something where I'd have a line from Diderot where he's talking about the Dutch colonization of South Africa and urging the um, indigenous peoples there who he called Hottentots, that was what they were called at the time, he urges them to fight back and resist the invaders. And I was thinking you could actually substitute, you know, a sentence for Diderot and a sentence for, from Franz Fanon and make people guess which was which. And in some ways, Diderot is more radical, you know. So there's just, uh, I mean, he just, he says, kill them all um, and don't leave one alive to tell the tale. I mean, he says it and even goes on in more colorful ways. But he's he's thinking about old-fashioned weapons, so I couldn't do it because he's not thinking about guns, so I, I never pulled this off as a literary as a literary project. So, so the post-colonialists 
by blaming the Enlightenment for colonialism and racism, they lose very important features of the Enlightenment that I think we need today. Um, one is a commitment to universalism, which goes perfectly well with an appreciation of the differences between peoples. Enlightenment universalism did not say, contrary to the caricatures, everybody's all alike or everyone should be all alike. Um, or everyone should be just like Europeans, on the contrary. Um, but, you know, you distinguish between cultural and political universalism, and politically, universalism is the only thing that will save us. Um, and then there are a few other points in which I think they, um, it, you know, got it wrong. So I am, uh, I'm, you know, the one thing that the Enlightenment did not get right, with a couple of exceptions, they were quite sexist. They weren't nearly as racist as people claim. On the contrary, they were quite sexist. I mean, they they thought that um, you know men of different ethnic and cultural backgrounds all basically had the same rights, but they did not imagine it of women. And I've tried to think about why. You know, you have a woman next door and you're you're thinking, you know, in very general terms about, um, you know, the Chinese who you've never met or indigenous tribes in South Africa. And you're sort of acknowledging that they should have the same rights. Why don't you think women should have the same rights? Um, and I, the only way that I can sort of explain or excuse it is to think about the fact that because of the rate both of infant mortality and maternal mortality uh, in the 18th century and through quite a lot of the 19th century, women's lives really were fundamentally different from men's lives, you know. So the idea that the human race could continue um, and that women could have absolutely equal roles in society is you know, it's partly a view that we can thank to, you know, modern medicine for, in addition to birth control, even before birth, you know, reliable birth control, um, modern medicine plays a role. But let's face it, they were just sexist. But, you know, that's um, my own view in all of these controversies is that uh, the Enlightenment thinkers were people who believed in progress. And I think in principle, they would be pleased that we've progressed beyond them. No, that's that's a wonderful way to uh, to finish this uh, response. And I very much look forward uh, to, to reading uh, your book. It sounds like it will also be a very important scholarly uh, intervention into larger uh, public uh, debates. Well, it's not so, I mean, I've read a lot of scholarship, but it's written for the general public. It yes, it's, it's highly timely to, to have such a book, I would say. Um, I wanted us to also talk, uh, perhaps also in, in closing, about something that, that I, I found very striking. And I should perhaps preface it by saying that uh, this year, uh, the events uh, in Ukraine, the Russian war of aggression, I think made German attitudes appear in a light that I haven't seen them before. They sort of recontextualized much of what we know about German political culture. And, and I wanted to talk uh, about as well, and I wanted to ask you a few questions uh, regarding this, again, very uh, current, very important, very tragic uh, subject. Um, Misha Gabovich has written uh, for the volume, and he underlines uh, how limited the degree to which the imperial dimension of Nazi German history has been taken into account 
uh, is still in a way characterizing much of the discussion. There is quite a lot of ignorance, especially concerning Eastern Europe during the Second World War. Um, and he underlines this by, I think, a very striking illustration, uh, which is that uh, there are actually many more uh, Jewish people in Germany today who descend from uh, Red Army soldiers uh, than, than, than those who would descend from, from Holocaust victims. And, and this is, I think, an, an important uh, um, intervention also into sort of trying to, trying to shift the discussion a bit in a direction that I think would be, in a sense, quite uh, timely. Uh, also, because I think this ignorance concerning uh, Eastern Europe has also impacted uh, contemporary attitudes and contemporary German policies towards uh, the Russian war uh, of aggression. So I was wondering whether you could, you could comment a bit on, on how you see um, the role uh, of this, again, ongoing uh, massive cataclysm uh, in Ukraine in, in terms of impacting uh, discussions in Germany, also our, our sense of the lessons that have been drawn from the Nazi past in Germany. Uh, and you know, how, how would you perhaps uh, try to account for what some see as the rather idiosyncratic official attitudes uh, in, in Germany and certainly among large parts of the German public? What do you mean by idiosyncratic? Well, I, I would say you know, that uh, there is a sense uh, as compared to many Western countries of uh, trying to maintain a level of neutrality, trying to basically uh, limit the potential for escalation and therefore not speaking in clear enough terms about who's responsible and, and who's, who, whose actions are the source uh, of all this violence that we see. I, that, that's, maybe, that's maybe one way of phrasing it, right? That basically this is a very one-sided uh, issue. And I think basically there is a German tradition of Ostpolitik, right? Coming from the 1960s. And it's based on, a, on an idea that uh, keeping uh, connections, you know, trading, having dialogue will help transform, uh, in this case, Russia. Right, and I think that belief, which again I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to discredit in general terms, but I think it has been contradicted by the processes of recent years. So that's what I'm trying to get at. I agree with you. So first of all, Mishigamovich is one of the most brilliant young researchers I know, and I was very glad that he found time, you know, while he was spending most of his time helping Ukrainian refugees that he found time to add his, uh, write his essay. Uh, and I think he's right about everything. And I can certainly, um, I'm not, uh, I'm not German by birth, but I've lived here a very long time. And I'm now also a German citizen. And I, you know, mea culpa, I also know much more about Western Europe than I know about Eastern Europe. Um, but of course, um, leaving myself aside, um, I think the biggest shock, you see, once again, it took West Germans such a long time to feel guilty towards what they saw as Russia, okay? It was in fact the Soviet Union and people did not pay attention to the fact that I believe the majority of both civilians and soldiers who fell in the war fell in Ukraine and just you know millions and millions of people. But it was the Soviet Union that people thought about and it was um, 
the Russians, let's go back to little Nazi propaganda here. Um, something that people have forgotten, although East Germans remember it better than West Germans. The Nazis did not recruit people by saying, uh, I mean, of course, there was a draft on, so you couldn't avoid going uh, to the Wehrmacht, but you, um, you know, you have to motivate soldiers as well as, as we're seeing in Russia right now, you have to give people something to fight for in order to get them to fight. You can't just bully them into fighting. And what the soldiers were told was, you know, the Russians, der Rus, der Ivan. Sometimes they would say the Bolsheviks, but it was also der Rus, der Ivan is coming to get you and your family and you have to defend your homeland, okay? Um, and that was much more part of the propaganda. You're not gonna get men fighting if you say, hey, come to Poland and let's kill a lot of um, old men and women and babies, right? The um, Rus is going to conquer us. And this was actually what the whole original historical Streit was about, was Ernst Nolte trying to revive this. Hitler was just fighting a defensive war against Stalin. Okay, So it took such a long time. I mean, I, I would even say, you know, first you had a sense of um, German taking responsibility for murdering Jews. But really not until the Wehrmacht exhibit, which did not happen until the mid nineties, did you focus on what the Wehrmacht did to civilians in the Soviet Union. But again, you had this sort of under the idea of the Russians or the Soviet Union without distinguishing what happened in Belarus, what happened in uh, Ukraine, it was just the Russians. So, the Germans get to a point of acknowledging, and Frank Walter Steinmeier gave just a year ago the most beautiful speech uh, on the commemoration of the attack on Russia, okay, in 1941. It was the first time a West German president had really commemorated that day and he gave a wonderful speech, right? So you finally get to the point of saying we were perpetrators there too. And then suddenly um, it's the Russians who are the perpetrators. I mean, frankly, I think this is almost similar to the Israeli, not that I wanna compare Israel with Russia at the moment, but um, it's you get stuck into seeing, it's hard to see somebody as a victim, you see them as a victim, and then how do you switch? So um, I think there's a deep confusion among Germans. I don't think it's cynical. A lot of people were saying, oh, they just want to do business with, uh, with Russia. That may be true of Gerd Schröder. It's not true of Frank Walter Steinmeier, not at all, okay? So there are many people of goodwill who worked their way into thinking, not just it'll be better for East-West relations if, um, you know, if we do business with Eastern European countries, but we have a responsibility because we screwed them up. We, you know, we laid that territory to waste and we have a responsibility, okay? Um, and so there's been a, you know, a tremendous difficulty kind of in assimilating all this. And I actually have to confess that at the beginning, 
I mean, before the actual war, but when people were talking about it, um, because Putin's attack on Ukraine has been by so many people just simply assimilated to the Cold War. You know, there's again, we forget that Russia is not the Soviet Union and Putin's there criticizing the internationalism of Lenin, which is my favorite part of Lenin. And, you know, but, um, you know, I, as somebody who grew up as an American, you know, at the tail end of the Cold War and still hears all these stereotypes, I was a little uncertain about how much credence to give to the reports that he was taking over Ukraine. But frankly, I think in Germany, as far as possible within the limits of a complicated democracy, I don't think there's any question about who's the aggressor. I really, I don't think, I mean, even those of us, and I kept saying again before the war started, if Henry Kissinger said not to expand NATO, then, you know, maybe we shouldn't have expanded NATO. But as soon as the war began and turned into uh, what, you know, the sort of terrorism that it's turned into, I don't think anybody was ambivalent about, I mean, a couple of, a few, a small, there's a small but loud group of people. Um, they're loud. And Misha was talking about one of them in his essay. But there's certainly a consensus that, um, you know, Russia is the aggressor and that Ukraine needs to be helped. I was amazed at the outpouring, um, you know, people taking Ukrainian refugees into their homes. I almost don't know anybody who didn't take some. I have to think about whether I know anybody who didn't take in people. Um, there was a real mobilization in the country. Um, you know, it was quite moving. And, uh, you know, I don't. I don't think there's a question about which side is the right side here. There is a worry about nuclear war, but that's a reasonable worry, it seems to me. Thank you so much for that. I think that clarifies uh, the matter really well, and I think it's also very encouraging, in a sense, hopeful a note to end on, having emphasized also the social solidarity that has manifested in such a stark and also also broad way this year. So thank you so much, Professor Naiman, for being on the show today and discussing all these fascinating and large questions with me. You're very welcome. It was a pleasant conversation. Thank you for your questions. The, the pleasure is all mine. I should say that the new volume that Professor Naiman has co-edited with Michael Wilt under the title Historical Streiten is definitely worth reading. It has a lot of fascinating studies that offer rich insights. I think it moves the conversation in important new directions. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation apropos the release of this volume. Until the next time.